Welcome back everyone, my name is Essen and this is episode 5 of the Brown History Podcast. Today's guest is Rajiv Mohiber. He is an Indo-Caribbean poet and his poems are one of a kind because his poems explore the roots and the consequences of forced migration, which is rarely ever done. What happens when you take a group of people with their own cultures and their own beliefs and transplant them in a different land far away from their homeland? How is that change and that trauma passed down to generations? We talk about all that, I'm really excited about this episode, so here we go. These are the East Indians, or Hindus, we mentioned earlier. Thrifty, patient, plodding folk. It is truly remarkable how these people from faraway India so steadfastly retain all their national traits and oriental peculiarities, no matter how distant from home they wander, or how many years or generations they may be away. Thank you for doing this. Where are you talking to me from? Um, right now, I'm outside of Boston in a town called Malden. I'm in Brampton right now. Have you Brampton, been to Brampton? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I have yeah? tons of family in Brampton. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. You like it here? Um, yeah, Brampton is the Bangladesh. Like, it's great. I just moved here from Montreal like a year ago, and oh, cool. I'm adjusting now. Yeah. Wow. Uh, there's a stereotype that in Brampton, there's a lot of bad drivers. And I'm here to tell you it's true. It's 100% really? true. I've been hit. My car's been hit three times and in the parking lot, not moving. Oh, no yeah. way. Is it, are the drivers are worse there than in Montreal? Yes, 100%. The roads are worse in Montreal, but the driving here is worse. I don't want to sound like a jerk or anything like that, but my car's been hit three times. Anyways, I read your, your poem book, The Cowherd's Son. Very dope. Okay, um, there's a lot to, I think one thing that I noticed that you did in your book, you don't explain yourself, because I'm Googling every word, every line to understand what you're talking about, and you're a complicated guy, you know, historically speaking, you know, there's so much context in behind you, history, culture, religion, languages, that I'm really trying to, it's like a history lesson, and then it's a poem book. And I wanted to know, I kind of felt bad for you because I know poetry is really hard and as a person of color, it must be like really tough for you, 10 times harder. And you decide not to explain yourself. You decide to just talk as if I know what you're talking about. And there's kind of a remorse there because you're missing out a lot of readerships, especially people who don't want to work for it. Doesn't that make you kind of... I don't know, a little remorseful, like, you know, if I, if I just changed this line into something else, some guy would buy my book. Some more people will read my poetry. But why did you not, I don't know, you must be really strong. You must be really courageous and, and, and resilient to do this. I really love this question. Um, thank you so much for reading my book and for inviting me to talk to you today and for everything that you've said. Um, yeah, like when I've approached poetry, it's always been, you know, I've always, ha uh, you know, encountered this question, how much do I let people in? You know, how much am I supposed to make it accessible? Like this idea of things being accessible, um, you know, to a broad audience, that this, this question has always kept my family out, you know? Yeah. Um, and I wanted to kind of have the speaker or the person who is like, in the utterancing, in the utterances of this book of poems, the, the speaker of the poems, to kind of stand at the center of all of the intersections 
you know, the Caribbeanness, the Indianness, the migrant, the migrantness, um, the, the the linguistic history, and all of that. Um, because I wanted to, I wanted the poems to bear witness to that history and those complications. How the paradoxes of all of these migrations and stories can live in one body. You know, that's all that's still in motion. And um, I do, I do have a profound sense of, you know, I could write the poems that would be, uh, you know, um, why reach a wider audience and be more widely consumed, but it would feel dishonest mm -hmm. to the speaker. And I think that in American poetry and North American poetry, I lament this, you know, even Caribbean spaces, like I was just thinking about this today, um, about how, you know, the, the South Asian descended language that was spoken in my family was kind of neglected culturally and nationally for this, uh, for, you know, adopting uh, a Creole and then an English uh, based on our history of colonial education. And so we've been taught that all of these places and all of these things that we come from are not good and that we, they, they don't deserve equal representation at the table. Mm -hmm. I'm, my, my hope for this poetry is that it's folky, you know, that it, meaning that it like represents the folk, um, the people around who just normal people, you know. Let's go into the history. Your grandmother, your Aji, as you call her, plays a big part in your poems. And I, from what I from what I know, she's from Guyana. And how did she end up in Guyana? Yeah, thank you. So actually, it's funny that you're talking to me from Brampton because my Aji actually rests in Brampton. Oh, really? I'm sorry to hear that. How did uh, she end up in Brampton then, I guess? Yeah, from... it's, it's a complicated story. Well, so my, my Aji was born in New Amsterdam in Guyana. It's, it's her parents, um, her grandparents that came to the Caribbean to cut sugar cane on the plantation. They were, contract, they were contracted for five years? And then exactly. they decided to stay? Yeah, so, okay, so the way the contracts worked back then was that it was five years uh, to go to the colony and you your, your, your contract would endure for five years. But to get return fare back to India, you had to uh, be bound for an additional five years. So all in all, Whoa. but the British are famous for, you know, they're believing themselves to be the cultural superior race of the planet or the people of the planet that um, what made sense to their their colonial minds was that instead of return fare because that was really expensive they could apportion indigenous land and just give them to the emigres after the contracts were done and so what happened was um you know my ancestors actually were apportioned those lands and so my grandmother moved from new amsterdam to proudwood creek in a place uh, at the end, um, at the end of the the road that led from Georgetown, the capital, all to the to the interior, which hugged the coast, literally the place was called Road End because the road ended. Oh. Um, and so, my my grandmother was born and raised in Guyana. You know, Hindustani, Caribbean Hindustani. She would call it Hindustani. It's actually, it, you know, and that that's the language that I want to use these days. When I've written about it before, we would call it Bhojpuri or Guyanese Bhojpuri and that. She called it Hindustani, meaning that there was like a, a kind of crossroads of history, even that that language uh, that formed that language um, uh, through various contacts of other Indian languages on the plantation. Um, and so that was her first language. She spoke Creole outside of the house. Uh, she got married when she was 14 to my Aja, my grandfather, who 
died when she was 44. She had, she gave birth to 11 children, but wow. raised about 30. Um, meaning mm -hmm. like she, she raised my grandfather's uh, uh, two sons outside of the marriage, as well as many grandchildren. When her youngest children were about 14 and 15, my aunts, um, that's when they migrated to Scarborough. Okay. Actually. And so um, my, my auntie lived in uh, government housing in Scarborough um, for many years until moving to Brampton to be closer to another Kuwa, to uh, my aunt who lives currently in Brampton. That's really cool. So your, your grandmother, so your, your grandmother's grandparents came from India and spoke Bhojpuri. And then that turned into Guyanese Bhojpuri, which you call Hindustani. And then the, what you use in your poems is Bhojpuri, is Guyanese Hindi. Is Guyanese Hindi, is that right? No, Guyanese Bhojpuri. Yeah, Guyanese Bhojpuri or Caribbean Hindustani. Caribbean Hindustani. Isn't it ironic that you're trying to preserve a language that was born through colonialism, in a sense, that was born in the plantations? Yeah, you know, it's it's really it's really it's weird. It's it cool, weird. but weird. It's insane, but it's it's it is what it is. But I'll say this: it's the only South Asian language that has an evolutionary history in this hemisphere. So it it is special in this way, you know, like the the, the, the Hindi's that are spoken here. And you know, it's like it's funny because we enter into this new kind of question: what is Asian American, right? If we consider Americas. Broadly, I mean that that includes Caribbean, Central, and South America, and Hindustani then becomes an American language. <laughs> yeah, because you know it's been here since the 1800s, which is that is know. interesting to think of. Yes, you're right. That is so, an American language then. Yeah, and so, but the thing is also like there's no like in in my understanding of the identity and language, um, my Hindustani and that 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 language doesn't exist without the contact that you're saying of colonization of the passage from plantation, um, of, of, uh, of uh, the passage from boat to plantation. Yeah. Um, you know, I just, I, I couldn't imagine. So for example, I'll give you an example, right? Um, in Caribbean Hindustani or the Hindustani that, you know, my grandmother spoke uh, was, it drew in words from you, uh, uh, African Caribbean speech communities around. Right. So, which were also inclusive of languages like Portuguese. So the language that, or the word that we have for children in Hindi, beta, perche is also yes. a word that people say. Um, instead of that, uh, my family uses the word pikni. Pikni? So beta means, is pikni. Yeah, but although we'll say bet and betia for son and daughter. So hamar bet. You could say betua is also another way to say it. But pikni, when you're talking about bakche, when you're talking about like a, like a group of children. Plural. Yeah. Really? Yeah. This and is so, from the community that was there before Indians came. Yes. And also the, the, the wildest thing was, you know, my grandmother, when, when she would say, I don't know, like, you know, in Hindi, you'd say, Mujhe malumni, mujhe patani. Yeah. In, in, uh, in um, my grandmother's language, she would say, um, Hamnajani, which is, you know, in Bhojpuri, you'd say Hamnajani. But she would also say, Minosabi. Really? No sabes. <laughs> oh, wow. You know? So it's funny because, like, linguistically tracing where that comes from is like, that's, it's, you know, Portuguese, no sabi. 
that's insane. It wasn't okay. So when the Indians came, there was a community there already, a black community, and this language that you're talking about is kind of a merge between these two communities. But at the same time, from what I know, there was hate between the two communities. First of all, how did the black community take it when when this new group of people came in who can who do who do their work? And then at the same time, there's a there's a hand, a puppeteer, the British, who are there to separate the two and divide them. And now you have this language that kind of merged. So there's a lot of layers here. Yeah, there are. Um, and especially um, pertinent now, as we see in Guyana, all of the killings that are happening of Black and Indian people. Um, and to know that this was something that was seeded from the beginnings of forced migration in general. So after the British outlawed international, the international slave trade in um, 1834, they decided to bring contracted people from India to the Caribbean to work because they didn't want to pay the newly emancipated slaves a fair wage. So the Indians came already as scab labor, you know, being being um, paid far less. Um, you know, most of the people that came were a lot of the folks that came and definitely my ancestors that came over were illiterate um, uh, uh, agriculturalists. Um, and so the contact that uh, came that arrived on the plantation, you know, many people write about this, like Gaija Bahadur in her book, Quilly Woman, The Odyssey of Indenture, talks a little bit about this original contact. Um, and Walter Rodney is a, a great thinker in Diana, um, Mark, uh, who, who um, wants to consider more of like a working history of the people <clears throat> instead of like history around ethnic lines, which makes a lot of sense because um, the, the, the construction of black identity as black was something that happened in that trade and in the, the settling in Guyana, as well as the Kuli, right? You know, Kuli is the name that we have for, um, that's a derogatory slur for Indians in the Caribbean, but it's also a, a word that some folks have been working to reclaim. It identifies a specific history. When you say someone is Kuli and not Desi, it means that they have a history of indenture for me right. and my family. Okay. But, when that happened, um, the British started to stoke the, the the flames of separation. I think what the, I, my my own my own thinking is that they were afraid of black and brown bodies and people um, uniting to overthrow the colonial government. So they would tell black people things about Indians to believe, and Indian things. Indian people things about black people to believe. And so they really did a really, they did a, a wonderful job as Britain has done in its colonies or had done in its colonies, um, creates this kind of divide. Mm -hmm. right? It's like huge rift between people who would be natural allies. Um, it's economic based. It's also, you know, perceived culturally to be culturally based as well. Um, the language that was already spoken in the colonies was a Creole, was a Guyanese Creole. And a Creole is, um, as soon as a pidgin language becomes a first language, that's when a creole is born. So a pidgin language is a language that forms for mutual intelligibility between people who have some kind of power over the powerless. So the British people talking to African people who had been enslaved wouldn't say, um, I would like you to do work now. They would say something probably like, uh, you go work or in like, you will work support yeah. in, the, in the future, you go work. And so the, 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 the person who is 
also, because of this power dynamic, forced to adopt this pidgin as the lingua franca instead of the maintenance of that first language, then errs on the side of the colonial power. I mean, in, you know, in, especially in um, the case of enslavement, people were beaten for speaking their African languages and it was like tortured and squeezed out of them. So when that pidgin language then becomes a first language, that's when it becomes Creole. And as you, you Whoa, know, Oh, that's mind blowing. Are you yeah, serious? Something, so you know what I'm talking about. That's right? crazy. Yeah. So, and then, and so that was the lingua franca and Creole languages change with every generation. So the Creole language that my grandmother spoke is completely different than how people speak Creole, Creolese or Creolized English in Guyana today. So, so then that would also mean that Guyanese Hindi is different per generation too. Then and Absolutely. what? Oh, really? And it just you keeps know, changing. Is, and Guyanese Hindi was so incredibly marked by location too. So somebody from East Coast would speak different, differently from someone from Essequibo. You know, like it, it's, it's about who was there. And Caribbean Hindusani developed from that contact as well, but not necessarily the contact um, with the British. Well, yes, with the British, of course, and also with the, the, the African folks and indigenous folks who were there, but also with people who spoke other North Indian and South Indian languages. So, like um, sometimes the words will be from Avadhi, sometimes they'll be from Kochuri, sometimes they'll be from, you know, um, Punjabi, sometimes they'll be from Tamil, which is wow. also, was also spoken in Guyana until recently. Can your grandmother speak with someone straight from India? Can the two understand each other or it's very difficult? Um, so, you know, it's funny because living in Scarborough, my, my Aji would shop at Indian um, grocery stores to get yeah. all of the masalas and everything that she needed. Um, and she, I remember being a child and walking into the store with her and um, people would see her and, you know, my grandmother, when she would say hello, would say Ram Ram. And so the, st the store owner knew to greet her Ram Ram Nani is what he, he called her Nani, um, which is, you know, maternal grandmother in Hindi. Right. And, Bhojpuri, and you know, all of, like a lot of, a lot of South Asian language. Um, and it was interesting to see them interact because he would say, Aapke Sehen like in form in Hindi, Urdu, which is, you know, how are you? And my grandmother would reply, Hamarju Achahai, which means, um, you know, literally my, my life, my life force is well or good. I mean, because like, do you speak Urdu or Hindi? Yeah, Urdu. Urdu. Okay, so if I were to say, what would your reply be? Tiko. Yeah, Matikun, right? Yeah. Or Hamtikhan, if you were like, old school. Yeah, yeah. But like in which you'd say, you could say kesehe. That's yeah. a good way to say it as well. But um, kaisanba. Who kaisanba? Like, really? Yeah. And in, in Bhojpuri, there's no tu, tum, and ap. It's just tu. Wow. Do you think the language difference, the dialect differences and the words kind of make your grandmother a bit feel like a, kind of an outsider? Yes, Absolutely. The contact and it, it created such insecurity in my family. You know this this new encounter with the migrations into Britain and to Canada and to the United yeah. States. When we meet people who are more recently from South Asia, where um, they don't recognize our um, or my parents would say that the people that they interacted and this would be like in the seventies, right? So it's a, a very different time 
um, for global migrations out of India and Africa of South Asian populations, as well as the Caribbean, um, they would have this like major insecurity that, you know, actually we're not Indian enough in the, in the things that we do. The foods that we eat aren't really Indian. Well, actually they're descended from, you know, village practices from Eastern UP and Bihar um, and not recognizable broadly outside of like, you know, how South Asia can be really ethnicized or ethnic in its kind of, so like what you can tell the difference between like um, food that is, you know, made and eaten by Bengalis versus people who are Punjabi. Uh -huh. right? There's like a, a palpable difference in the yeah. food. In, in Guyana, it's kind of yeah. standardized. So yeah. it's, you wouldn't recognize these things. Like, so for example, in Guyana, listen to this shit. Excuse me, I'm sorry. I don't don't worry I about it. Unfiltered here. <laughs> okay, good. Um, so in Guyana, we make this thing called bara. Bara. Right? Bara. And bara is like, it's like fried and it's fluffy and you eat it with chutneys. Um, it's, it's made from dal. And then in recent generations, people have been using meda um, or white flour in it too. It actually descends from vada, from, um, which is a South Indian food. Like vada is like fried. Yes, yes. Yeah, so yeah. It's like an ancestor or vada um, is like the ancestor to bara. Whoa. Like totally wild to like just sit and think about that too. But then there are things like pulauri, which people, you know, bajiyas or pokores or whatever. It's, it's analogous but it's not the same. Like, I don't know if you've read this article, but oh my goodness, several, like maybe three, four years ago, an article came out about all of the different types of bhajiyas from South Asia. There's so many kinds, which is like, you know, all of them are very, very, very regional. Yes. And I, you know, I, yeah, there's, I recognized maybe like four out of like the list of like 15. Um, and I think that like folks wouldn't broadly understand that. So. It's interesting how language and food culture serves to like locate us in a sense yes. of community, you know, and how when other people can't read those ethnic markers that we have for ourselves, then, you know, we feel this insecurity. So, um, yeah. And so then, you know, we, we start talking about our English and our Hindi yeah. or Hindustani as in languages. So, we, you know, we speak broken or that's just Ma. Ma only speaks broken English or don't trust Aji what she says about this because she speaks broken Hindi. Uh. So she loses credibility, I guess. I'm, I was when I was reading your poems, I was trying to, you know, it's normal for people to kind of put other people in boxes and kind of label them and identify them. It's just the way the brain works. And I'm trying to identify you as I'm reading these poems, and then every poem has like a new surprise, and I, I can't, I can't find your location. I can't locate you. It's almost as if you are more you identify with the with the journeys than you do with the destinations. Is that just you, or is that do you find collectively the whole Indo-Caribbean community where they don't really belong to the homeland and they don't really feel belong in their own uh, location? They're just kind of, it's messy. It is, yeah, identity is messy. Um, I think personally, and especially with this book, I was trying to make sense of that, but then also like growing up on the outside of Indo-Caribbean culture and community as well, because I grew up in rural central Florida. Oh. Where there were like no, there were three brown families around who were like, you're not brown. Oh. Uh, so, I mean, there were like these kinds of like things that I was, I was encountering too. And my, my dad did a really good job of when we moved to the United States for, uh, of him being like, you're going to assimilate. No one is going to recognize any difference in you. And you know, I have a poem in this book where, you know, I, they, I, I say that they gave me the first name, Paul. Oh, you know? 
like so my name is a map yeah like, i saw that my name is a map yeah so paul is my first name Ramy is my second name Ramy is a british name um rajiv is the name that i go by and then my last I'm name is here. very very guyanese um but um yeah so there's like these levels of being outside but we want so much to be understood and i what well, i'm I, I think that I'm against the idea of flattening out all of our diverse experiences, even within an Indo-Caribbean community, like all of the diverse experiences that happen to say that, oh, please recognize me as Indo-Caribbean. Like that's not as important to me as like, this is an individual experience. So the shifting here in, you know, the, the kind of position that the, the speakers through these poems inhabits, um, inhabit, uh, kind of reflect that for me, because I can't tell you today that how I feel about my migration story and my history is gonna be the same feeling or this, I'm, I'm gonna think the same way of it in a year. Like okay. this is all, it all changes in relationship to where I am in the world and who's around me. And how much you know. Yes, exactly. And how much, I, what, what else? How much you've I, learned. Yeah. Does your, the, I know that uh, Guyana, I think, was independent from the British in the 60s. Did your grandmother, did she have kind of like a, a an outlook on the British as if like they were better? Or did she understand what colonialism is for what it is? Basically, does she celebrate Indian Arrival Day? Yes, good question. Um, Indian Arrival Day was instituted after the migration out of Guyana for my family, uh, so it was never really it was never really a thing, and we never really think about it outside of our origin story. As a matter of fact, like India was a long time ago. Like it's true, it, it might as well be a mythological homeland for my family. Yeah, and so I think that uh, my grandmother actually was very much, um, you know, a product of her time. Um, and culture in that she venerated all things British as well as, you know, my other family. I remember when um, Princess Diana died, um, I was 16 and my, my Aji had come to visit us in Orlando from Toronto. And I remember that day, um, I think it was, was it August 31st? I want to say. It was summer, that's what I remember. Yeah, and I remember my grandmother just weeping Really? For days and days and days. And I remember looking at her and being like, Aji, why do you care so much about the death of this white woman? Like, she represents everything that, like, all of the, the, the kind of horrors that our family has, like, gone through. She didn't really have um, much to say about that. I mean, my, my, my grandmother didn't read and write in any language. But that doesn't mean to say she didn't know things and have stories. Right. Uh, one, it's, it's funny because I think of, like, Indo-Caribbean... Jewelry. I'm talking. I, I was talking to my friend um, Amira Nimji, who teaches. Kata, she's a Kathak dancer, um, trained in Toronto, actually. Okay. Um, and she lives right now in Tacoma. And her family is from. Um, they're Ishmaelis from South Africa, and Kenya, or uh -huh. Uganda, I believe. Uganda and and South Africa, who migrated to Canada um, in the in the time of uh, the 70s, I believe, or maybe even a little bit. Um, where we were talking about uh, jewelry, like colonial era Indian jewelry. And so my grandmother had all of these different British coins like that she would call sovereigns that she would wear. And in fact, I asked my mom to send me one and she sent it to me and it's like, you know, queen, like the, 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 the... I have one. 
Do you really? Do you? Your family? Know. Someone has gave it to me. Yeah. Someone oh, wow. gave it to me as a gift. Yeah. Apparently, yeah. people wear it as a necklace. For, he told me that people wear it as a necklace because they were scared that if they left it at home, someone would steal their money. Interesting. That's what I heard. Yeah. This is one that my mom sent to me. Wow, that's gold. The front. That's beautiful. Um, and it's uh, from 1912, which is, you know, contracts were still being made. And I think about it too. I mean, this is, this is a tiny one. My, my, my Aji's are like way bigger than this. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting kind of story, like what jewelry meant and what it was for. But to think about like how deeply embedded colonialism is, is that, you know, we wear colonial money as jewelry like to adorn our bodies as though see we can be worth something to the colonial master um and i have this and i and i, and I took it i took it uh, i brought it from my mom's house because i as i write and i wade through this history i really like to have these trappings around me to remind me of oh yeah there's a story behind this thing and you know this uh, object from history can really illuminate uh, a complex understanding or it can serve as a signpost that points in two opposite directions. Wow. I've noticed that every time you talk about yourself in your poems, you somehow connect it to the past or to to what was happening back then. For example, you talked about how women, the men to women ratio was really off and how men pleasured each other to get through it all. You use that. Can you explain that of that and domestic abuse? Because what were the consequences of having the percentage of men much more greater than the percentage of women? This is a, a very tricky and complicated question because of all of those things that you say. And like, you know, being being in the present moment and speaking from, you know, or imagining a queer past, right? Um, whether or not it's queer, like I, that might be an uh, anachronistic or meaning like that's a term that we have today that doesn't necessarily apply to what was happening. Yes, that's um, true. You're right. So I think about that as somebody from the present looking at the past and how, you know, we could, how I could envision a kind of whole life that I could have lived in that time period. And so it's oh, true. Wow. The British yeah. brought um, indentured laborers to the Caribbean. They brought mostly men um, and very few women, um, which led to women having a lot more autonomy in who they chose as their partners, which meant that, you know, women were empowered to then leave abusive husbands and go elsewhere, which triggered rage response in the colonized husbands of the time. Um, and domestic violence, which erupted in um, uh, murder of women by men in this uh, resource uh, poor environment, meaning like, uh, you know, the, the ideas of, of marriage weren't the same. It's funny because these exist in old, old stories, like old, old stories. Nobody I, nobody I will talk to in my parents' generation would ever admit that this was a reality where, you know, our great great grandmothers had more than one husband, would go from one place to another and leave at will their husband's house. Um, and really? so, 
Yeah, and so the British thought that, okay, so we can't actually control these indentured laborers without bringing more women, um, you know, and with several petitions to the British government, people opened up the, the passage to bring women a, a little bit um, to a, a more equal ratio or, or more approaching equal ratio of women to men to the colonies too. And so like straight up, like we know this from human behavior that sexuality exists on a continuum of what is available and what is possible. And right. so you know, the, 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 the musty or the kind of like sexual contact between men in this, you know, in this era couldn't have been understood uh, as deviant without a kind of colonial understanding of deviance. So like even for example, like, you know, I'm when I was traveling in South Asia in, uh, maybe this is, maybe I'm telling a little too much of the story, but <laughs> in, uh, you know, the early 2000s, I'm like traveling and I met some guys and, you know, whatever happened happened and so uh, I the way it was explained to me by them was that oh it's just what happens it's not necessarily sexual uh. even though it is it's not it's not about identity it's not about identifying as this is my sexual practice it's right just, it's just a thing you guys did yeah that's exactly. it nothing to really think much about it yeah and it's like it's not even a thing because you know oh yeah you'll have to, you'll you'll get married and have children and that's like how it goes, but this is also, you know, possible in space with men. Um, and we see that, we see that happening today, you know, where, you know, um, people who are, people who identify as men or, you know, women are kept in, you know, communities where it's just, uh, you know, single gender places, for example, you know, like people, we, and, and there's always like, there seems to be some kind of like force from above that is like mapped onto, the, the people below in terms right. of thinking about this practice. And in Guyana, I guess it was the British who kind of put out these uh, anti-gay laws, right? Yeah, that are still in effect in Guyana. Trinidad has has tried to, to, to topple that, has toppled them as well as um, in India, it has been undone. Uh, yes, you know, somewhat. The Indian Penal Code was written, uh, you know, it, it, it's 377, it's the vices of the punishment of the act of buggery. That's India. Is that the same in Guyana too? In, in Guyana, three seven seven. Yep, but it's not. It's not called three uh, seventy seven in Guyana. I um, it's called uh, oh gosh, I don't remember what in Guyana it's called. But I actually go through this where it's actually the same language written by Henry the Eighth or the Seventh in the fifteen hundreds, the same exact language that's used in the colonies. Not because they were like oh these indentured people or these like colon colonized people are terrible. It was more so that oh. Actually, the British military, uh, men in the British military, ha were engaging in you know same sex sex, um, and a way to curb that was to like have this rule and then punish people. Gayatri Bahadur, I mentioned her book, uh, Holy Woman, Holy Woman: The Odyssey of Indenture. She did some research where she saw like what did it, what did punishment look like, you know, for people who were caught in the act of you know what was then called. Sodomy. What what was the punish? What did the punishment look like? So the ship surgeons would, it's just, it's just awful, um, would tie the people to the mast of the ship um, and um, burn the penis with um, a hot iron uh, oh. to, to prevent any kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> penetrative sex that includes a penis. Um, and I think that uh, one of the things that happens, too, is that, uh, you know, it was also used and justified as, like, to curb masturbation in boys um, and this was like very much a British invention 
Yeah. Wait, it, the British didn't want kids to masturbate? Well, so I'm not exactly sure about the British history of, of this, but yeah, masturbation, I guess, is like in, that. In, their, in, their, in the colonial subjects too, or just the British within the British? You know, I mean, I think the colonial subjects could approach being human, but could never really be human in colonial eyes. So I wonder about this too. And that's a really good question. But I know that like, it's, they, they say that this practice is, uh, oh gosh, what the, what was the, the, the words exactly were like something like, this practice is also known to cure uh, boys of masturbation, or something, something like this. So, this which is kind is, of, this is outside of it, but I read that Kellogg's cereal was invented to stop kids from masturbating, and then it just became a cereal. Don't quote me, but I'm pretty sure that's that's why that's how the origins of Kellogg's became. Wait, like uh, eating it would like make would stop? You know? Yeah, so whoever invented it made it. His intention was that it would stop people from masturbating. <laughs> Whoa! Yeah, um, can can we talk about your your translation of "I Even Regret Night"? Because that's a very interesting story of how that came out to be. Yeah, yeah. So, so this "I Even Regret Night" um, Holy Songs of Demerara was originally published in 1916, and you know now this is my third mention of Gayatri Bahadur. Well, anyway, so her book and, and her research, um, in her research, she, she unearthed this text, which was the only known, it's the only known first-hand account of Indian indenture in the Anglophone Caribbean. Um, and it, it's a, a very significant collection of songs that uh, tells the story first. And it's in three sections. The first section tells the story of indenture and what, what it was like. Um, the second section of the book, they're more like, it elucidates a kind of spirituality, a Hindu okay. spirituality. Um, and then the, the third section moves into a kind of just like a, a collection of bhajans or praise songs. He wrote this while he was in the plantations working? Yes. Wow. But the thing is, it's like he has had a complicated history as well within Dutcher because he wasn't necessarily um, always... Uh, working in the cane fields as a cane cutter. So, you know, Gaitra in, in, the, in the afterward talks a little bit about, you know, what his actual subject position was and how it changed in relationship to um, how he had power in the colonies. So, for, so, like, you know, even being able to read and write in, you know, Abadhi, Bhojpuri, Brajbasha even, um, and just to, to show in his book that it participates in a very specific literary tradition shows some knowledge of those traditions, which means, you know, in my, in my estimations, a lot of like, uh, uh, native or, uh, learning, like, so learning, uh, that happened in the context of South Asia and the South Asian religious traditions. Um, so that's something, and this yeah. book really like, it's been really interesting to kind of delve into it now, over a century after it was originally written, and to see how plantation Hindi was galvanized from these different languages into a proto-Caribbean Hindu sound. So it's like seeing an ancestor. Wow. Um, holy songs. So that's like folk music, right? Like let's say Maya Angelou with her book uh, "Why the Cage Bird Sings," and you find out these it sings to kind of 
distract itself from the suffering from being caged. Did indentured laborers have that kind of culture too in, in folk music where they would have songs to kind of distract themselves from the suffering that they're that they're dealing with or were they religious or was it kind of both i guess Ooh, sorry so, yeah no this is a good question because i think it, it touches actually on my academic research oh, um, right where that. I, like how people do rum and how rum was actually kind of one of those pressure rum games. rum like alcohol, alcohol. okay yeah okay. It was like a pressure release valve, but also it bound them even further into the plantation economy. I want to talk about alcoholism too in Guyana. Uh, was an alcohol also kind of a system to get out of their suffering and to kind of get through the day? So yeah, and I think like cultural productions do that as well as like, you know, taking alcohol also. It did that thing where it provided temporary relief from the horrific conditions, you know. And where are those pressure release valves in all of these places? Like, you know, folk songs were used to, 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 to challenge patriarchy, for example. Like, um, you know, my grandmother sang this one song that she called like, you know, a rice planting song that was like really, really long. And it was like a sister talking back to her brother after she gets married and can no longer go to her father's house. And her brother comes to visit her and she's like, no, you can't come into my house because, you know, my husband is otherwise engaged. Meaning like, you know, and it was kind of like contesting this patriarchal rule of the, the brother, father, husband as like owner of woman um, subject. Um, and so there's that element to it. Um, you know, there's some protest songs that emerged, um, but you know, when when it comes to the that that release or to, to the, the escape, I would say that in the in the in the, in the next several generations, Chutney music arose as a, a cultural production or a music that existed outside of the literary world and outside of the the trappings of high art, which meant that it it was it had more appeal to um, more folks, and so. That was amalgamative, meaning it, it included Afrobeats, it included like, you know, more Caribbean language, um, as well as Hindustani. And so you get things that like contemporary Chutney music, um, which descends from that. And so, yeah, I mean, a lot of that music is about having a good time, but then also a lot of people don't realize that a lot of that music is also very religious. Really? Yeah, so um, there's a, Bajave. Oh gosh, there's so, so many. That I give can, us like, a sample. I know, right? Of the ones that are religious. Oh God. Um, but 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 religion in in the Hinduism context or religion in in the African context or both or it doesn't even matter anymore. It's just there. It's all one because I noticed that in your poetry, you you touch on Islam, you touch on Hinduism. It's all over the place. So is that Chutney music where it just doesn't matter? It's just one. Well, I mean, I I. I... I want to say yes, but I cannot deny the, the cultural hegemony or the cultural power that Hinduism has over, you know, any, any Indian person in the Caribbean or Kuli person, descended person in the Caribbean, um, you know, and how now it's related to the, the, the cultural right-wing movement in, in Modi's India, which is, in my opinion, just abominable. Um, mm -hmm persecution of religious minorities. And so now to look at it, I, it's, it's a hard thing for me to say that, oh yeah, you know, we're one because actually those were not the dynamics. Although the hatred between the Muslims and the Hindus in Guyana wasn't 
the thing that the British stoked, rather it was the black and the Indian that the, the, the British wanted to keep apart. So Munshi Rahman Khan, in, who is a poet from Suriname, he writes that we are all one mazhab. We, 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 we have like come across and we are no longer Hindu Muslim. We have become Kuli. Um, and that, I, I like, I think that that's beautiful. And quite literally in my own history, um, I have ancestors that are Muslim as well as Hindu. Um, and Christian and, uh, you know, maybe even atheist, who knows? Um, mm -hmm. So there's this kind of mixing that happens, but to say that, um, you know, I'm not this, or this is not this, then that's like, that's a problem because you could, you could feasibly have, my name could be Rajiv Khan. Yeah. You know, which would mean that, uh, you know, and I could say that I am, uh, I'm a Hindu with the name Rajiv Khan. Or I could say I'm a Hindu, I'm a Muslim with the name Rajiv Khan, and nobody would look twice. No. So, so there is that, um, and I, I, yeah. Chutney music. How did that come about, and why is it called chutney? Why is it named after a food? So, chutney's chutney music's history is really something that developed uh, in the '60s and '70s from women's songs in the Caribbean. So we. In the Caribbean, a lot of Bhojpuri folk traditions were brought. So I don't know, Bhojpuri folk songs, there are, there's a folk song for every part of your life. Like, you know, every part of the wedding ritual that lasts for days and days, every part of, you know, the, the lunar calendar, every part of like, I'm stepping outside today, there's a song for this. Um, or like, you know, here's a song because, well, but, and so they're, they're all very related to kind of like place and time. And so in Guyana, there's a new context. There's no longer monsoon. That doesn't quite happen. There's no longer the three seasons, like, um, you know, Jara, Barka, and Garmi. Um, there are no longer those seasons. There's just tropical heat. So <laughs> what happens then to the songs that are specific for Barsak or for rain? Um, you know, like the Kajari songs or the songs, you know, that represent that kind of longing. They were performed publicly by women in either homosocial spaces, spaces just for women, or more broadly. So, you know, every place would have, oh, this person knows the right songs, and so they would come and sing, from what I'm told. Um, so Chakni music emerged when people started to be recorded, like Sundar Popo, Ramdeo Chaito, Sundar Popo from Trinidad, Ramdeo Chaito from um, Suriname, and Dropati also, but not to be com confused with Drupati, who is like the new Trinidadian singer. This Dropati was the older one who... Okay sang like Banaras ki Maharaj Jai Ho, which is like, why are you singing about Banaras, like, you know, Varanasi in Trinidad? Like, this is a really interesting <laughs> connection. But anyway, so after that kind of happened, Sundar Popo is who I see as like one of the four people who actually galvanized this. What he did was he started to not only make um, samples of beats, like sa samples of beats, that's such a contemporary thing to say, but African beats with, and rhythms with, this kind of Indian instrumentation of harmonium and dantal and um, jhal and majira, um, he would then also mix language. So then what would happen would be that Chutney music would have a Hindi chorus, a Caribbean Hindustani chorus, and the rest of it would be sung in maybe Creole or English. Wow. Yeah, so, and that's how in the 70s Chutney music actually represented a kind of positionality or a kind of history, uh, uh, like, again, like standing at those crossroads. This is how it, it represented standing at those crossroads. It's funny because I think about this and I think about Chutney music as actually a new kind of literature 
for people who were not only taking in colonial education. So it's more descended from the Indian folk song that was brought to the Caribbean, Chutney music, because of the form of music. Uh, but then also like with the kind of like thematics that are engaged, right? The themes, what are, what are these people singing about in these old songs? Find their ways into these new songs. My new collection of poems that's coming out next year, yes. I've invented a form called the Chutney poem based on this Chutney music. And Chutney, because it's Chutney, meaning like, it's so incredibly mixed that you cannot say that this part is not, like, this is the Indian part, this is the Caribbean part, this is like the African part. It's like, like think of a bottle of achar. You eat achar? Yeah. So when you eat achar and the achar is done, what do you do with the bottle? Use it for something else. Well, does it ever get rid of the smell? No. No, you use it for probably more achars or whatever. Yeah. So it's like that. And so, you know, in the, you can see the, uh, the, the mango bits. You can see the, 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 bits, the bits of masala, like the jira, for example. You can really feel it. When you take it out and you eat it, it's still, the, the jira alone will taste like achar. Yes. The mango will also taste like achar. So this is why it's called chutney music, because it's so incredibly mixed. Wow. I, wow. That's a pretty good uh, analogy. Can you give us, um, I guess, a preview of your chutney poems? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. You, you are ready. You look ready. No, no. Ready I, I have my computer here, so I'm going to like pull up a, 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 a poem. Um, uh, let's see. There's a, there's a story uh, in your poems that talks about a woman selling jewelry and running away from her husband, and it keeps coming up. Is that, a, is that someone in your family? Um, so the, the, old, the, the story goes that um, the reason that, uh, you know, a grandmother will give bangles to her granddaughter is so that she can have like this portable wealth that she, if, needs, if she needs to escape, is able to sell her jewelry and leave. It's kind of like what we were talking about the sovereigns, like the, the coins, right? It's like, you know, there's always a way to, to leave. So the jewelry is not passed from... Well, actually, it's so it's it's complicated because sometimes the jewelry is actually passed from um, the, the 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 bride's in-laws to the bride. Yes. So it's patriarchal descent in my mother's side of the family. In my father's side of the family, the jewelry is through the mother and to, through the mother's mother to the granddaughter. So oh. it's like a, a different kind of trajectory and so this might have to do with the diversity of my own family you know the fact that my mom's family was from Georgetown and were you know relatively um, uh, financially um, able in a way that my my father's family was not okay um, and I, I grew up closer to my father's family anyway so. okay so jewelry was from your mom's side was used as kind of like a safety net like a like an escape hatch yes exactly in case things don't work out. And I guess there's somebody in your family that used it and escaped. Um, well, or metaphorically. I mean, not, ex not exactly. I like to think of that. Um, but I think of, I think of uh, the domestic, I connect it to the domestic violence in my family. And so there's always like a, a way to, to escape. And that poem that you're thinking of actually is for my cousin who lives in Brampton. Um, I dedicated to Tina Eden. Shout out to her. Yeah. What's up, Tina? So the poem that I'll read to you is called Dantal. Okay. And Dantal is a musical instrument that is formed 
that you know in uh, people say that it comes from the word danda which means stick, stick. and tal which is a kind of rhythm but dantal is what they call it um, and it's an instrument that they say is unique to indentured labor communities that have you know so places like you know the caribbean and fiji also have this kind of instrument um, and so typically with chutney poems uh, what happens is there is a chorus in Caribbean Hindustani and then the rest of the poem that happens not in Caribbean Hindustani. But Dantal is a deviation of this. And maybe I should give a more standardized. Maybe I'll read two. Give, first give one, more context. Read... Make sure you've given everyone yeah. the context because your poems are hard. Yes, they are very hard. So I guess what I'll start with then, if I'm going to do this, is the poem Kuli. Um, and Kuli is it's a little bit easier to... to um, to, to latch onto because it articulates this history and this idea of descent from um, the the grandfather to the imagined the imagined grandfather to the imagined um, grandchild, um, and so Kalapani uh, was the way that the old people, the Jahaji people, the people who came on the ship, used to call the ocean. Kalapani was the black water of that. When you cross it, it erases your history. Really. Yeah, yeah, and it erases your 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 tie your uh, kinship ties. It erases it erases your caste. It's it was looked down upon because if you came back, you were kind of considered like uh, I don't know an out an outcast all of a sudden, right? Because I think there was a religious background to it. Totally, you lost your you lost your traditions. You lost your community. Who knows what you ate when you left? Right, right, right. So it was kind of like in on a religious lens. It was kind of like don't go, don't cross the ocean, don't cross Kanapani. Okay. So um, the, the, the chorus is in Caribbean Hindustani um, and I'm going to read it in Hindustani and I'm going to translate it at the very end of the poem. So it's going to have like this movement. So Kuli. Kuli naam daharaya ham tej pakade jaisan churi kaate hamke gayanawa mein aike. With this whip scar iron shackle name, aja contract bond, Come night, he drink up rum fisso until he wind up and pitch in the trench black water and cry, oh manager, until sugar and pressure claim he to I. The Bakra manager laugh we, so come, so done. I was born a crab dog, devotee of the silent god, the jungle god, the god crosser of seas. White tongues licked the sweet demerara of my sores. Now, stateside, Americans erase my slave story, call me Indian. Can't they hear Kalapani in my voice, my breath's marine layer when I say, they made us hold the name Kuli like a cutlass, it bit us coming to Guyana. So wow. that's that one. And it also journeys through language in a way. Yeah, I noticed that. So the first is like Hindi, or and then it goes to Guyanese Hindi, and then it goes to English. And it's yeah. like an evolution. Wow. It's very different, the three of them. It's very, the dialect, the accent, it's insane how different, uh, how the evolution is. You're right. That's crazy. Yeah. And, and like writing in and out of this has been like, it's been a real exercise in how would, how would Aji say this? I'm lucky that I recorded 
hours and hours and hours of conversations with her that I've been able to go back into. Um, is that a dying language? Is that language like... It's like functionally extinct. I, I <laughs> like, I, there's, there are probably a handful of people, most probably of which live in Brampton um, and in um, Richmond Hill, who actually in Queens, New York, who still probably speak. You know? Oh, wow. Okay. So it's, it's funny because like, what am I doing here in this language? You know, why am I writing in this? Why are you writing it? Why are you spending so much time and energy on a language that's dying? They would why say is this so important to you? Yeah, it's important to me. Me haunted. They would say like it's haunting me. Maybe you know, maybe the ghosts visit me in my sleep. Who knows? Maybe like this is like <laughs> a thing to do with reincarnation. I have no idea. But this next poem, Dantal, actually talks a little bit about what to do. Yeah. Um, you know, it starts with the Aditala. It's called Dantal, an instrument, and Aditala is going to be the chorus. And it's, um, I don't, I unfortunately can't do the, the bolts in like Kathak and classical Hindi, uh-huh. or classical Hindustani music, but it's Aditala. Da, ki, da, da, ki, da, da, ki, da, da, ki, da, I don't know, somebody who can do Aditala will. Sakia, if we forget our songs and stories, who will we become? Consider the dholak player. Consider his chutney. The drummer knocks his rhythm deep into us. Crickets in our temples. A heartbeat to keep the deep time of the oceans lapping. To keep us clapping. To keep us remembering our names. Gold music of the hands bangles. I made a pair of my own pointed rods marked in X's and flowers to gleam in tempo. The top smooth and bare before curved to fit the wrist. Friends, beat a drum yourself. Become timekeepers. The iron ox cart axles transformed into music. 